Hear the word of the Lord. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their building up and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if, your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even when they do not listen to me, then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God, that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in tongue, let there be only two or three at most, in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. 
If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. In all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Olympic gymnast Simone Biles. You can judge my body all you want, but at the end of the day, it is my body and I love it. Love your body. Oscar winner Kate Winslet, as a child, I never once heard one woman say to me, I love my body, so I make sure I say it to my daughter every day, love your body. American all-star Serena Williams, most women athletes are pretty thin, and I had to come to terms with my muscular features and loving myself. Love your body. British model, Emma Watson. I don't have perfect teeth, and I'm not stick thin, and I want to be the person who feels great in her body. Love your body. Well, in the last few years, that has been the modern mantra of, of many women, and increasingly many men today. Love your body. Live with the way you are. Accept all your features. Love your skin and your muscular build. Love even your British teeth and your baldness. Don't care. Love your body. Well, I wonder if you do. And I wonder how far you would take that modern mantra. But you see, on one level, the contemporary cry to, to love your body is wonderfully refreshing, isn't it? There's a right humility in accepting what you've got and pushing against worldly beauty standards. We should love our bodies, whether the world likes them or not, for every body and every part of our body has been made by God. But should we so love our bodies that we end up not caring about their overall health? What I mean is, should we so accept certain bodily imperfections such that we stop caring about the health of the whole. Because that seems to be the trajectory for some. According to some writers, at Generation Z, and their right acceptance of the body is seemingly causing some to wrongly reject the dentist, the dietitian, the doctor, and all that will be helpful for the whole body. And so again, what about your body? Do you love your body? Could an acceptance of your stomach lead you to a rejection of the salad? 
Could an acceptance of your skin lead to a rejection of the shower? Well, that's a conversation for another day. And perhaps a conversation with almost as many landmines as the passage that Nicole just read to us. Because the reason I begin with it is not because of its comparable thorniness to 1 Corinthians 14, but rather because that has been the primary call of the Apostle Paul throughout his letter to this first century church in the Greek city of Corinth. For in essence, Paul's message has been, Corinthians, love your body. Love all the church members, for you are one body in Christ, and accept all the features of your body for what they are. Indeed, accept that not many of you were striking in the world's eyes when they became Christians. And so stop being so sorrowful that your preacher isn't slicker. And stop being sad that some members aren't smarter or or have greater social standing. And stop trying to seduce the world with some pseudo-spirituality. Acknowledge your church body. It's not like the body of a top American athlete or a British model. Love your body for what it is. But as a result of that, Corinthians, as a result of that realization, don't stop caring about the overall health of the body. Don't let the reality, says Paul, of a body which is often very plain in the world's eyes give you license to stop doing that which will bring well-being to the whole body such that you end up just focusing upon yourselves and your gifts that you think will attract the world. And friends, although we are almost 2,000 years on and almost 6,000 miles away from Corinth, in my experience, it's very easy for us as Christians to do that. To begin the Christian life with a, with a passion to make our local churches as alluring to the world as possible, but then to grow in passivity towards our local church when we begin to see certain members of the body in all their ordinariness, in all their lacking of the gifts that we have. Friends, I wonder if that describes you this morning. Has a sinful passion to catch the world's eye, sinfully caused a passivity about the church's health and with it a sinful promotion of self because you believe that only the the use of your gifts will cause unbelievers to come in. Well, either way, that's the problem that Paul has been addressing in these last two chapters uh, using that body metaphor. For in chapter 12, in the beginning of this section about spiritual gifts, Paul reminds the church that their spiritual gifts were not to be used to to wow the world, drawing emphasis to themselves, but rather to build a healthier body. For 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For verse 14, the body does not consist of one member but many, And so verse 20 of chapter 12, the eye must not say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again of the head to the feet, I have no need of you. For verse 27, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so we saw last week in chapter 13 that God has appointed you with all your different gifts so that you might use these gifts lovingly to build up the whole body in health. You see what Paul's been saying 
as you look back across these last two chapters. No matter how plain some church members might look, every part of your church body has spiritual gifts, and those gifts are to be lovingly employed for edification and not for a showing off that the world might love you. Indeed, to extend the the body metaphor, we might say that the the greatest spiritual gifts then must not be like the, the gift of painting your nails, the hand, proudly painting the hands, highlighting their their, their own beauty to be alluring to the world. No, the greatest spiritual gifts must be more like the, the, the gift of being able to run on a treadmill, the legs lovingly working away to make the whole body more healthy. And so again, verse one, look with me. First verse of chapter 14, pursue love. Use spiritual gifts in love, not individualistically to bring yourselves honor in the world, but corporately to bring health to your local church, which very practically meant what for these Corinthian Christians? Well, verse one continues, look with me. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. What did loving the church body mean in Corinth particularly? Well, practically for the Corinthians, it meant that they should desire the spiritual gift of prophecy over the spiritual gift of tongues. And that is what 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is all about. And so the application for us is pretty easy, right? Edgefield Church, love your church body too, desire the spiritual gift of prophecy over the spiritual gift of tongues. And whilst I'm very tempted to end my sermon right there, I'm guessing that many of you are hoping for a little bit more than that. Because the divisive and and maybe even disconcerting spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues have confounded many Christians for many centuries. And many godly men and godly women have drawn many different conclusions about this chapter. Accordingly, let me say to say from the outset this morning that this sermon is unlikely to fully satisfy you. For I am unlikely able to answer every question about tongues and prophecy sufficiently. There's just not enough time. And I'm unlikely to be able to answer your every question with, with unity. I'm sure that some of you here will disagree with me. Indeed, for much of this week, I felt like I've just been constantly disagreeing with myself, finding myself in my study going back and and forth on, on certain parts of this extremely difficult text. And as a result of that, I also think that I'm unlikely to be able to answer every single question correctly. In fact, let me be clear, this is not me speaking on behalf of the elders or the membership at Edgefield Church. We don't we don't have a church statement on, on spiritual gifts. This is just me wrestling with this text, praying, doing my best. Some of the conclusions are tentative, and I'm still not quite sure I have the right answer on every single point. And so with that confidence-inducing admission, (laughs) where do we go from here? Well, let me tell you how how I want us to navigate uh, this text, having highlighted this main idea of, of love your body, For as you can see on your sermon notes page, if you look there, there are are three sections to this sermon. It's not normally how I preach. It might feel a little bit teachy this morning, but I thought it would be the most helpful way to go. 
So firstly, as you can see that, I want to define prophecy and tongues and set these two gifts within the context of Scripture. And then secondly, having gotten our bearings, I want us to walk through this chapter and see how Paul's argument fits together. And then finally, having reached the end of our 40-verse hike, I want us to walk back up that well-trodden ground and draw out six applications for us today. And I've got about 30 minutes to do that, so let's begin. At what are tongues and what is prophecy? Well, let's start with the easier one of the two. What are tongues? Well, as you can see in that little box that I've given you a definition of, and my definition begins, tongues are the spiritual gift of speaking an unlearned language. So the first time, if you remember, that we see the gift of tongues in the Bible is in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Famously, the disciples are kind of hiding in a house, uh, scared to speak of Jesus' glorious resurrection. But then the sound of a rushing wind comes and the Holy Spirit descends. And Acts chapter 2, verse 4, the disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues, literally other human languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so people from all over the world who'd come for this international festival of Passover, of Pentecost rather, hear them praising God in their own language. And the locals briefly think that Jesus' disciples are drunk. But Peter says, with stone-faced soberness, it's only nine o'clock and the bars aren't open yet. And all recognize that a divine gift has been given as these educated nobodies from Galilee spoke in languages they couldn't have learned at school. And so in this great kind of reverse of, t- of, the, of the Tower of Babel moment, where God is recognized and not rivaled, where the nations are not scattered by language, but rather are drawn together to hear God praised in one voice together, many people repent and believe and the church starts and begins to be built. So tongues are the gift of speaking an unlearned language. And most of the time, that would seem to be a human language. And whilst I haven't seen that myself, I've heard credible stories of that happening today, where people have gone with the gospel to new places and have miraculously been given the gift to speak about Jesus in that human language of that people group. However... In this instance, in first century Corinth, I think that something a little bit different is happening. For as you can see, verse 9, this type of tongue speaking is unintelligible. Indeed, verse 2, this time, nobody understands it. So it's not as if a a Corinthian church member was speaking every week in Swahili, but the girl from Tanzania was on vacation, or that someone was speaking in Japanese, but the, the Tokyo businessman had gone home. Now, what seems to be happening here is someone speaking not in the tongues of men, but in the tongues of an angel or the angels, which is what Paul mentioned last week if you look at chapter 13 and verse 1. So the spiritual gift of tongue speaking is the gift of an unlearned language, though not necessarily a human one, so that the Christian can praise God. However... Contrary to what we might see today in some churches, it is not an ecstatic gift. This ability that some Christians have to speak in mysterious angelic languages is not kind of like setting off a load of fireworks. 
For in verse 27, it clearly tells us that it's something that can and should be done in a controlled manner. First, ensure there's an interpreter, says Paul, and then speak when it's your turn. Indeed, since it gives personal encouragement, verse 4, it's something that could be done at home. And it's only going to bring benefit to visitors if it's the type of tongue speaking that was done in Acts chapter 2. So that's prophecy. So that's tongues, rather. What about prophecy? Well, well, this uh, spiritual gift is, is even more disputed. But prophecy, I believe, is the gift of insightful word-based discipleship. It is an insightfulness about how God's word applies to a church member's life or indeed the whole church's life together. It is not an infallible kind of thus says the Lord kind of prophecy like in the Old Testament and nor is it like authoritative expositional preaching which explains and unpacks God's word and says look at what God clearly says here. For as you can see from verse 29, prophecy is something that needs to be weighed. It's not a direct command from the Lord. And so contrary to what some of us may have experienced, it is not the trump card in a Christian argument. It's not, well, well, God told me that you should marry me and not him. It's not a, well, well, God definitely said to me that, that you should take that job in Nashville and not New York. It is not, well, God revealed to me that we should plant a church here and not over there. Indeed, as you can see from verse 37, prophecy must never trump the apostles' words. New Testament prophecy is is not on a par with the Bible. And so New Testament prophecy may be unheeded. Indeed, for example, we see that in Acts chapter 21. A chap named Agabus, who we're told is a prophet, prophesies that that Paul will be bound if he goes to Jerusalem. And what does Paul do? Does Paul treat him as an Old Testament prophet? No, no, Paul goes to Jerusalem anyway. He weighs the prophecy and he thinks, well, I still think it might be best to go to Jerusalem for God's glory. So tentatively, I think that prophecy is insightful, word-based discipleship. It is the insight into someone's life in small group when they're not sure how to parent. And it's the reassuring prayer on a Sunday evening when a a, a fellow member is facing grief and and just the right verse comes into your mind as you're about to pray. It's the wise and inspired verdict from from a brother in an elders meeting. It's the edifying comment from the the sister at the members meeting. Verse 3, it is upbuilding and encouraging and consoling. Accordingly, prophecy can be done by both men and women. In Acts chapter 21, we read that Philip the evangelist had four daughters that all prophesied. And likewise, in 1 Corinthians 11 that we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw that women could pray and prophesy in the gathering of the church. Indeed, it's something that can be done by everyone. Did you notice that in verse 31? You can all prophesy, says Paul, so that all may learn and be encouraged. As a result, as we shall see later, it is also something that brings conviction to visiting unbelievers when they realize that they're not a part of that blessed community. And so with those two definitions in mind, let's very quickly walk through uh, the passage together. Now, the, the practical premise of the passage, as I've said, is desire prophecy over tongues. Uh, both are spiritual gifts, 
And though tongues might look like the kind of the worldly wow gift, for Paul, the gift of prophecy is actually where it's at. And there are two reasons why people should desire prophecy over tongues. And firstly, in verses 1 to 12, Paul says that prophecy is preferable for those inside the church. If you've lost where we are for a second, I'm now under that box and under the bit that says, for the sake of those inside the body, desire prophecy over tongues. And the main reason for that, as we've seen, is because when someone speaks in a tongue, verse 2, no church member can understand them, for they utter mysteries. But when someone speaks an insightful prophecy, the church member is built up, verse 4. And the simple reason is because they can understand it. Indeed, in verses uh, 6 to 11, Paul uses three illustrations to make this point all about the uselessness of uninterpreted tongues in the gathering. In verse 6, Paul says, all this uninterpreted tongue speaking that you focus upon, well, it's as useful to you as me coming to you and preaching in Vietnamese. Indeed, verse 7 It's about as edifying to all of you as a toddler blowing the same note on the recorder. And many of us know just how unedifying that is. But most dangerous illustration of all, verse 8, your tongue speaking will be as spiritually as awakening as the unclear bugle call to the army when the enemy attacks. What Paul is saying here is, is, Corinthians, if you are more impressed with indeterminable noises, rather than opening up your Bible and speaking to one another, well, don't be surprised if you are found napping in your sleeping bag when the enemy false teachers come along because you've spent all your time on impressive noises over listening to God's word applied well. Prophecy brings health to the whole family, but tongues by their nature cannot. Shortly after Sarah and I got married, uh, we took a summer trip uh, to see her college friends, and so we went to deepest Georgia. And on our way there, uh, whilst uh, being in need of much refreshment in the hot weather, uh, we stopped at the Whistle Stop uh, Cafe, uh, the iconic rest stop uh, in the 1990s movies uh, Fried Green Tomatoes. And wanting to take the the, the lead and and kind of serve my my new bride really well, and so strengthen us for the the journey ahead, in the politest and the softest of English tones, I asked the waitress for some water for the table, to which I received a, a sweet southern reply, you want what? I asked again, could we possibly have some water? To which I received a second reply, you want sweet tea? And I asked again, to which I received the staggering third reply, you want coffee? In all honesty, we we might have died of thirst if Sarah had not stepped in to translate. Why were we not refreshed and strengthened for our journey? Why was our new family together not helped? Well, clearly, when I get as far south of Georgia, it is like I am speaking in tongues. And that brings no benefit to the whole family. And so verse 2 to 12, for the sake of those inside the body, desire prophecy over tongues. So what did that mean practically when they gathered? 
Well, in verses 13 to 20, Paul then explains some practicalities. Uh, Basically, just like me at the Whistle Stop Cafe, every tongue speaker needs an interpreter. If a tongue is spoken at church, someone must translate, which is why you and I here at Edgefield Church shouldn't speak in tongues in the church gathering unless we know that someone will be able to interpret so that verse 16, all might be able to say amen. However, in verse 21, Paul then turns from arguing for prophecy over tongues for the sake of those inside the gathering uh, and to what it means for those outside the gathering. For clearly there were times when unbelievers uh, visited the church in Corinth. That's very clear. And so out of a love for them also, the church should again desire prophecy over tongues. And why was that? Well, Paul makes his case by quoting from Isaiah 28, which refers to the time when unbelieving Israel would hear the sound of foreign tongues. And so verse 21, just look with me there. By the people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So back in Isaiah at 28, Israel was judged for not listening. And the tool of God's judgment was Assyrian soldiers. And hence tongues were a sign of God's judgment upon them. For the joyous victory cries of strangers in their land should have woken them up to their sin and their inability to listen to God. But they just thought it was strange. And they still refused to listen to him. Accordingly, Paul says, if you speak in tongues, then you will be to the visitor as the Assyrians were to Israel. Our unbelievers, uh, friends interested in Christianity that you might have, they will come along and they will just think that your tongue speaking is very strange. And they won't realize that God's judgment is near and they will think indeed that you guys are mad, verse 23. And so tongue speaking that kind of victory sign of God's wonderful justice to come is not actually the kindest thing you can do to the outsider. But in contrast, can you see what is kind, verse 24? What is very kind? But if you speak to one another and prophesy, if you so love one another and encourage one another, if you employ the words insightfully and plainly, then unbelievers will say, verse 25, God is really among you. You're not a barking mad people. You're a blessed people. And so second time around, then Paul explains practically what should happen when the church gathers. And in verse 27 to the end, we see that Paul lays out more ground rules for orderliness for the sake of the unbeliever. And so in regard to tongues, verse 27 and 28, the maximum tongue speakers must be three. No simultaneous tongue speaking may occur. And if there's no interpreter, don't speak at all. Likewise, prophecy must be orderly too. Verse 29, that the maximum spoken publicly should be three. No simultaneous prophecy must occur. And if it's a prophecy for the whole church, let it be weighed carefully. Indeed, when it came to the weighing of certain prophecy, there needed to be far more order in their gatherings. For as verse 34 alludes to, it seems as if some women in the church were shouting out in the middle of them. Now, now maybe 
Some of them just had a theological question because very sadly, uh, most Greek women had not been educated in the same way as the Greek men. They were certainly as smart as the men, of course, but they just hadn't had the same schooling in that society. Indeed, because men and women often sat separately in the church, maybe these women were shouting out questions to their husbands across the room. And that was the reason for disorder. But more likely, I think, if we look at the text carefully, some women were being disruptive as they challenged something that was said publicly. Accordingly, in verse 34, Paul says that women should be silent which obviously cannot possibly mean that the women were to metaphorically tape their mouths as they picked up their service guide and they entered the sanctuary, or that women had no role to play in the gathering other than just doing the childcare and serving the coffee. No, that, that, that notion had, had no place in the church then, and that notion has no place in the church now. For how could the women pray and prophesy? in the gathering of the church without opening their mouths, which is what Paul had approved in chapter 11, verse 5. Now, the reason for Paul's command here was clearly because chaos just reigned in their gatherings when there should have been a biblical order. Women were not to shout questions across the church. They were to ask their husbands when they got home if they had a question, verse 35. And women were not to get into public arguments with their husbands who might have been in church leadership. Actually, some needed to submit, verse 34, to male leadership as the law that's Genesis taught and be willing not to cause public war because God is a God of peace, verse 33. And the reason, again, is so that visitors would not be humiliated by such a proud and riotous people. But friends, even with those caveats placed, if verse 34 is still the most sexist thing you've ever heard, uh, do please come and chat to me afterwards. I would love uh, to talk to you more about that. However, with Paul's overarching call to love your body, still ringing in our ears, and those two biblical definitions, tongues and prophecy, still reverberating in our minds, having now walked through the whole passage and Paul's argument and the specifics to the Corinthian church, what can we learn together as Edgefield Church? What can we learn? Well, as we think about loving our body here in Edgefield in 2023, there are six features of a healthy body that I quickly want to highlight for us today. For firstly, this passage teaches us, I think, that we are to seek divine orderliness, but not a forbidding of tongues. Now, if I was preaching this sermon in another church, I may underscore the divine orderliness part, which reflects the character of God, verse 33. For it's clear that many churches in America today need to look more carefully at these very clear commands. For sadly, some churches not only say that you, you must speak in tongues to know that you're already a Christian, but practice tongue speaking in a way that, that just totally overrides everything that is said here. Indeed, one only needs to go on social media to see the, the kind of baffling and, and deeply off-putting sight of middle-aged white men dancing in the spirit and women screaming all simultaneously in weird voices to see that a lot of churches need more order. But thankfully, that's not us as Edgefield, is it? 
But as a result, one of the ways in which I think we might need to heed Paul's conclusion here is in the desire to obey verse 40, that we disregard verse 39. For verse 39, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now let me be very clear here, uh, since we, we now have, have God's word in most languages, I think the gift of speaking in tongues it is less needed now publicly. And I certainly don't think this passage tells us that we must carve out a, a, a part of our service in case anyone is a tongue speaker. However, I don't think that this gift has ceased. In fact, if you want the technical term, I'm not a cessationist. Indeed, I don't think anyone has the right to say, stop being silly, God has stopped giving that gift now. In fact, I think this passage shows us that the private benefit of that gift if we have it. For after all, verse 18, Paul had the gift of tongues, and verse 5, he desired that all might have it too. Accordingly, one of the ways in which I have sought to apply this passage to myself this week was to ask God for the gift of tongues. God hasn't answered that prayer for me that I've prayed in the past, and he didn't answer that prayer last week. And honestly, I don't really think that that I will absolutely need that gift, unless perhaps I go and be a missionary in Georgia. <laughs> but in all seriousness, in all seriousness, we must not disparage a beneficially spiritual gift. We certainly must not forbid it. Second application, a healthy church body is one which listens to different voices, but shows a willingness to sometimes be silent in verse 26, one of the things that, that really struck me in this passage was the beautiful picture we get in Corinth. It's an often terrible church, and yet there's a beautiful picture there of all the members learning from one another and discipleship happening through many different voices. Verse 26, one of you has a hymn, and one of you has a Sunday school lesson, and one of you has an encouraging word for another. The church members are listening to different voices during the church and after the church service and at the prayer meeting and in small groups and at summer Bible study and over morning coffee and afternoon tea. And yet, despite the fact that the church looks to employ different voices for the edification of one another, there is equally a willingness to be silent at times. Indeed, strikingly, three times, Paul calls for moments when despite having something spiritual to say, for the sake of others and for the sake of orderliness, church members will shut up and they will sit down. Did you see that in verses 28 to 34? A wife may think of something more edifying to say when their husband is in the middle of a sermon, but for the sake of orderliness, they must not stand up and shout it out. An experienced Church elder, perhaps, might be in the middle of a very long and, and helpful answer to a question in the Bible study, only for the youngest small group member to pipe up and interrupt them with an application whilst the elder is speaking. And the elder will not mind. Because in a healthy church, full of healthy members, there is a willingness to be silent because of the realization that any word that we have been given is not for the benefit of ourselves, 
but for the benefit of the church. And so, friend, let me ask you, are you some, someone who is sometimes willing to shut up because you recognize that someone else has something important to say? Or are you someone that always needs to hog the microphone? Someone who is easily slighted or offended when someone gets the opportunity to speak on a, on a Sunday evening and perhaps share their testimony, but you don't. Application two, a healthy church body is one which listens to different voices but shows a willingness to sometimes be silent. And application number three, a healthy church body is one which defines church membership but will be transparent for the unbeliever. In the letter of uh, 1 Corinthians that we've been going through for a number of weeks now, I hope you've seen how clearly defined church membership was in Corinth. Now, they might not have had a church membership directory, but people in Corinth clearly knew exactly who belonged to their body. Indeed, verse 23, there were certain believers who made up the, the whole body. And yet, in contrast, in verse 25, there were others who knew that they were just visiting that they could enter the, the, the gathering of the church, the church meeting, the church service, but they were outsiders, they were non-members. And yet, through, though these, these outsiders knew that they were outsiders, there was a real transparency about the church's life that allowed them to know where they were. That the church membership was not some kind of, some kind of secret cult, that the members did not speak in code to one another or have secret handshakes. No, they spoke encouraging words to one another. They loved one another with the truth of God's word. And so the walls of church membership were not impenetrable walls, ununderstandable walls, weird words so that, that no outsider could really see in. No, the walls of church membership were transparent walls, Gospel words were spoken to one another and lives were changed. And through their speech, visitors knew that they were not in, although they could clearly see the benefits and the beauty of being in. Indeed, this definition of, of, of the church by discipleship would actually cause some people seemingly to come into the church and join it. For as the church fed on God's word together and encouraged one another, that the selfish hearts of the outsider were exposed and their alternative godless communities were seen and they said, God is really among you. Can I join with you? Can I worship God with you? When I used to live in London, I lived right uh, by the Royal Botanical Gardens. And being a local, I often got to the gardens uh, very early, before most people got there. And sometimes on very cold and, uh, and frosty mornings in winter, I'd get there so early that it was still bitterly cold. And as a result, on the coldest of days, I'd often look into one of the, the, the huge tropical glass houses. And I'd look through those large transparent windows and there I'd see bananas growing and tropical flowers flourishing and I'd feel the warmth on the other side of the glass. And overcoming my proud grin and bear it, 
British tendencies to, to stay outside in the cold with all the leafless trees in the dead of winter. I'd look again through that glass and to all the fruit and all the luscious green and all the warmth bestowed on that sheltered oasis in that glass house. And I'd open the door and I'd go in. And I never regretted it. And friend, maybe that's you here today. Maybe you've been visiting our church for many weeks, maybe many months now. And as you've done so, you have begun to feel how cold and barren and fruitless it is to be outside in the world. In fact, that the longer you have stared through the window of our church and listened to people encouraging one another and discipling one another with the gospel, that the more you have begun to feel the warmth and as you've seen the growth of just very ordinary people. Friend, if that's you, maybe it's time to walk through the door, to accept Christ and to enjoy wonderful fruitful life with his people. Anyone can come in. The church is for anyone who would accept Christ as both Savior and Lord. Application four. Application four. A healthy church body will have deep devotions in private, but will prioritize the coming together. Now, it might sound obvious, but, but can a body part function if they're not regularly attached to the body? Can a church member function as a member if they don't gather with the whole church? Is the Christian to be totally fulfilled if they speak in angelic tongues and can praise God in private? Well, the answer very clearly from 1 Corinthians 14 is no. And so, friends, though it may sound very obvious indeed, let me remind you again, your primary edification happens in this building. Not because this building is particularly edifying, but because this is where your people, your body gathers every week to build one another up. Sunday is where it is at for the healthy Christian. So be here. Now, of course, you'll have to take the vacation from time to time. And of course, the schedule at work may sometimes prevent you. But don't expect to grow much as a Christian if you think that six great quiet times in a row allows you to miss Sunday with your church body. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit, but encouraging one another. Application five, we're nearly done. Desire to speak to God, but have an even greater desire to speak about God. Desire to speak to God, but have an even greater desire to speak about God. Clearly, the Corinthians love to praise God. They love tongues, that which allowed them, verse 2, to speak to God. But that came at the cost of not spending much time at all, clearly, about speaking about God. And sometimes I think that there is a little bit of modern American Christianity in that. We love our praise songs, so we should. We love our passionate worship, and so we should. And we love speaking to God in private, and we should. But how much time do we spend speaking about God to other people? How much discipleship do we really do of other Christians? How much time is spent telling people about who God is and what God has wonderfully done in Christ? How many Americans 
leave their church building, the second, the final note of the final song is done because they are done with speaking to God and they're not going to stay for the speaking to others about God. Because I'm so thankful that our church is not like that. Please keep going in that. I know that, that, that many of you love using your time to build up other members. I love the fact that you do that. And finally, in the summary, a healthy body is one where there is development of others, but not a development of self. Friends, our time's gone, and I have repeatedly made this point, so let me just simply end this time by asking you, as I asked at the start, do you love your body? Have a look around. Do you love your body? And if so, how will you gather with your body every Sunday? What will you consider that your aim is each week as you walk through those red doors, past the greeters, and into this room? Are you coming in the hope of one day being on the stage soon? It is church really only meaningful for you when you get to develop your gifts and your reputation? Or are you coming for the development of other people because you love the body that God has given you? And so coming with the expectation that you will bring every Sunday real and tangible, gospel-soaked words of edification for the development, for the building up of other people here. Let's pray now that that might be the case and that we might indeed use the rest of our time remaining after the service to do just that. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, we praise you as the giver of all good gifts. And Father, we thank you for the gifts that you have given of your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have gifted each and every member of this body And Father, we ask and we pray that you might help us to lovingly edify your son's body here at Edgefield. Help us to continually be orderly in our services since you are not a God of chaos. Help us to be willing to listen to other people. Help us to live transparent and godly lives beautiful lives of discipleship with one another that outsiders might come and see you and worship you ultimately. Father, help us to make a priority of coming, to feed one another despite all the busyness and distractions of our world and help us to speak more about you. Help us to be in the business of of developing other people and not ourselves. And Christ as the example of that par excellence, would you help us in lovingly building up your body here? Would we not look for the empty praises from the world, but would you give us a vision for honoring and building up your people? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.